Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 41. Last week, I covered the Canaanite deity Chemosh and reviewed what was known about Jephthah's daughter. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm beginning with the Hebrew festival associated with Jephthah's daughter, Tekafat, and pressing forward. And with that, let's get started. Tekafat is a four times a year event marking the turning of one season to the next, and the four seasons are notated essentially the same as we do in the Western world. The beginning of spring is at the vernal equinox, when the lengths of day and night are the same. The next is the summer solstice, the longest day of the year. The autumn equinox, when day and night are again the same length, and the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year. To be more exact, each tekafa marks the beginning of a period of 91 days and seven and one-half hours. If you've ever paid attention to the transitions of the seasons, none of this should come as a surprise. According to the Talmud, each divide is named for the Hebrew month it occurs in. There were also ancient superstitions that accompanied each. For example, all water that may be in the house or stored away in vessels in the first hour of the Tekafah is thrown out in the belief that the water is poisoned, and if drunk, would cause swelling of the body, sickness, and sometimes death. Several reasons were given for this. Some say it is because the angels who protect the water change guard at the Tekafah and leave it unwatched for a short time. Others say that demons are fighting at the time and drop blood into the water. Another authority accounts for drops of blood in the water as parallel to the waters in Egypt turning to blood at that particular moment. At a different changing of the seasons, it said that Moses smote the rock and caused drops of blood to flow from it. Another season has the knife which Abraham held to slay Isaac drop the blood. And finally, at the last Tekafat, Jephthah sacrificed his daughter, which is why I'm covering this now. What's not known is how these superstitions came into being. There are theories, though. A 10th century AD Jewish theologian recorded that this was a custom in the West, meaning west of Babylon, and posited it was in place to ensure each season began with a supply of fresh, sweet water. A contemporary of his ridiculed the fear that Tekafah water will cause swelling and ascribed the belief to the gossip of old women, likely that era's version of an old wives' tale, though others noted that they had personally experienced several instances of people drinking non-replenished water, then falling ill, with some even dying. Some qualified this as only standing water, not water that had been boiled or used in salting or pickling. The danger posed by unused water could be avoided by putting in it a piece of iron, or an iron vessel, or in the case of a different writer, by lowering a new iron nail into the water with a string. This was especially important for baking matzah during Tekavah. And that's it for that particular occasion, with a slight connection to Jephthah's daughter. Next up in Judges 11 is the place Mineth. 
After Jephthah defeated the Ammonites, he is said to have struck them from Aora to the neighborhood of Menon, twenty towns, and as far as Abel-Karamim. Eusebius, in his work, the Omnomasticon, mentioned a place with the same name, about four Roman miles, roughly just under four statute miles, just over six kilometers from Heshbon, on the road to Amman, Jordan, known at the time by its Greek name, Philadelphia. It's possible that Minith was seven miles, about 11 kilometers from Amman. The same place may have been mentioned in Ezekiel 27 as having traded wheat, honey, oil, and ointments with the coastal city of Tyre. Other than these few mentions, not much is known about the city. Embedded in the same passage in Judges is the city of Abel-Karamim. This name translates to Meadow of Vineyards, giving a slight indication of what it was known for. The site of the city remains unknown, but both Eusebius and Jerome recorded that it existed in their time, meaning the 4th century AD. They also placed it some 7 Roman miles, about 6 statute miles, 10 kilometers, from the Ammonite city of Rabbah. And that's it for those two places, and for Judges chapter 11. Judges 12 presents Jephthah after he sacrificed his daughter and when he has to deal with intertribal dissension. At this time, the men of Ephraim took up their weapons, crossed the Jordan River to the city of Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites, and did not call us to go with you? We will burn down your house over you. As we've seen several times so far in Judges, one tribe gets angry with another when they don't get to share in the glory following a victory. Jephthah said to them, My people and I were engaged in conflict with the Ammonites, who oppressed us severely. Make note that the implication is that the Ammonites didn't oppress all of the tribes, just those near Jephthah, likely meaning those living east of the Jordan. Jephthah then reminds the Ephraimites that when he asked them for help while they were being oppressed, they did not come to his rescue. It was only after he gave up on any sort of assistance from them that he took matters into his own hands. He went up to the Ammonites and defeated them with divine assistance. Then he asked the Ephraimites what was likely a rhetorical question. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Not waiting for their answer, he gathered all of the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim with Jephthah and his army defeating the Ephraimites, but not before they lob a final insult at Jephthah, reminding him that he and his men were fugitives from Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the heart of Ephraim and Manasseh. I'm not sure what all of that meant, except maybe that the Gileadites weren't that highly regarded. Then, a part of the story I've mentioned a few times and speaks to the differences between the various tribes. The Gileadites took the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. Whenever one of the fugitives from Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they then said to him, Then say, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. 
Then they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. Forty-two thousand of the Ephraimites fell at that time. While it likely wasn't intended by the writer, this passage does give us a peek into that particular time and place. Locations, especially when considered in our modern context, weren't that far apart, perhaps 20 miles, 33 kilometers, but were isolated enough that different dialects and accents easily developed, and the distinction was enough to lead to execution, along with a peek into history being recorded succinctly enough to last a few thousand years. That part of the conflict is the last highlight for Jephthah, as he would judge for six years, then die, being buried in his hometown of Gilead. To end this episode, I'm going to stick on how this pronunciation has come to mean more, especially in a cultural context. Overall, what's become known as a sibboleth is any custom or tradition, usually a choice of phrasing, or even a single word, that distinguishes one group of people from another. Given the context in Judges, this is really straightforward. Sibboleths have been used throughout history in many societies for several different cultural reasons. As passwords, simple ways of self-identification, signaling loyalty and affinity, maintaining traditional segregation, or protecting from real or perceived threats. The term originates from the Hebrew word sibboleth, which means the part of a plant containing grain, such as the head of a stalk of wheat or rye. It could also, but less commonly, translate as flood or torrent. The modern use derives from the account, this story, in Judges. In this case, the difference concerns the Hebrew letter Shin, which is now pronounced like the S in show. In the modern English language, a sibboleth can have a sociological meaning, referring to any in-group word or phrase that can distinguish members from outsiders even when not used by a hostile outgroup. It is also sometimes used in a broader sense to mean jargon or slang, the proper use of which identifies speakers as members of a particular group or subculture. In information technology, a sibboleth is a community-wide password that enables members of that community to access an online resource without revealing their individual identities the origin server can vouch for the identity of the individual user without giving the target server any further identifying information. In this case, the individual user does not know the password that is actually employed. It is generated internally by the origin server, and so cannot betray it to outsiders. So, an ancient Hebrew tell meets a modern context. There are several similar modern examples of such sibboleths. In these, it's usually a subculture within a society that's attempting to distinguish themselves from another subculture, much in the same way the Gileadites used it to separate themselves from other Israelites. In a modern context, regional differences, levels of expertise, and computer coding techniques are several forms that sibboleths have taken. Backing up a bit, there's a legend from 14th century France that has the Flemish army slaughtering every Frenchman they could find in the city of Bruges. 
They identified Frenchmen based on their inability to pronounce a Flemish word that I would massacre myself. One that translates as either a shield or friend, or possibly friend of the guilds. There's also an antidote from 12th century Sicily that, during the rebellion of Sicilian Vespers, the inhabitants of the island killed the French occupiers who, when questioned, could not correctly pronounce the Sicilian word for chickpeas. Just like the Ephraimites, it was a food that did them in. And that wasn't the only time it was food. In 16th century Northwest Europe, in what's today Germany and the Netherlands, and during the Frisian Rebellion, ships who cruised could not pronounce butter, rye bread, and green cheese were usually plundered, while soldiers who could not do the same were beheaded. From the 18th century, on the island of Sardinia, April 28th is celebrated as the day of pursuit and capture. On that date, in 1794, some of the citizens of the city of Calary chased suspected officers of the ruling king, demanding they pronounce their word for chickpea. When the 514 officers could not, they were sent back to the mainland. On a more brutal note, in 1937, the Spanish word for parsley was used to identify Haitian immigrants in the Dominican Republic. When they said it wrong, some 20 to 30,000 were executed under the orders of the Dominican dictator. During the German occupation of the Netherlands in World War II, the Dutch used the name of the seaside town of Schakvuninung to sort the native Dutch from the occupying Germans. In the Pacific theater of the same conflict, some U.S. soldiers used the word Lollapalooza as a shibboleth to challenge unidentified persons. It's said that Japanese spies would often approach checkpoints posing as American or Filipino military personnel. When the spies couldn't correctly pronounce the word, they were dealt with up to the point of being executed. In the United States, the name of the state, Nevada, is derived from the Spanish Nevada, meaning snow-covered. Nevadans pronounce the second syllable with an A as in strap, Nevada, while some from outside of the state can pronounce it with an A as in palm, Nevada. While the latter pronunciation is closer to the Spanish pronunciation, it is not a pronunciation used by native Nevadans. Similarly, the same test can be used to identify someone unfamiliar with southwest Missouri, where the preference leans towards Missouri. In New Jersey, the name for a regional type of cured pork product can identify whether the speaker hails from the northern or southern part of the state. Pork roll is widely used in the southern part of the state, while Taylor ham is used in the north. Finally, there's also the concept of a furative sibilith, which is a type of sibilith that identifies individual as being part of a group, but not based on their ability to pronounce one or more words, and instead on their ability to recognize a seemingly innocuous phrase as a secret message. For example, members of Alcoholics Anonymous sometimes refer to themselves as a friend of Bill W., which is a reference to AA's founder, William Griffith Wilson. To the uninitiated, this would seem like a casual, 
if off-topic remark, but other AA members would understand its meaning. And that's it for this episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up in Judges 12. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes or wherever you get the podcast from. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.